I want to bring the greetings from the Grace Baptist Church in Nairobi in Kenya and uh, also the, the Baptist Church in Kisumu and uh, they, they allowed me to bring God's word to them um, on, on a couple of Sundays and I think over here you've also been looked after. I want to thank uh, Wally and Kevin and Ted and, and Sam. So uh, praise the Lord for God's people and for God's servants who use their gifts to share God's word. This morning um, I want to share about the voice of the Lord from Psalm 29. The voice of the Lord. Now, hearing the voice of God is not an easy task. What do I mean by that? For the most part, it's not that God isn't saying anything. The problem is that most of the time we have him on mute, a bit like our mobile phones. We turn him right down. But throughout the Bible, God is constantly speaking to us But most of us are not listening. Throughout the Bible, he has many servants who share God's word, inspired by the Holy Spirit. David was one of those who listened to God's voice. He gave us many psalms of what he went through in his life and experience, and we did a whole series on the life of David. He was a man after God's own heart, which means that He listened to God, even when God rebuked him for his sins. He turned around and repented. One of these psalms that he wrote is Psalm 29, which is a a beautiful hymn of praise to the Lord. And as you might have noticed, as as I read it, is that the phrase that is, is repeated constantly is the voice of the Lord which occurs seven times. Seven times. It's, uh, the number seven is important throughout the scriptures. And even in the book of, of right throughout the book of Revelation, it's, it keeps appearing. In Revelation chapter 10, verses 3 to 4, God's voice is referred to as the seven thunders. Now, that study in Revelation is, is for another time, but... This morning we will look at this psalm in three parts, in three parts. So firstly, the call to worship from verses 1 and 2. The call to worship. Ascribe to the Lord, O mighty ones, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Now, strictly speaking, you've heard the term a call to worship. It is a call to attention as the people of God gather together. It is something that we usually do at the beginning of a service, call to attention, to concentrate, because we are together as his people. But, the preparation, the call to worship should already be happening as you're preparing on Sundays to come. And as you look forward to on the Saturday to come together, you're already preparing your hearts. But when you've got kids, 
When you've got so many things, when you've got kids, you've got to get ready. And Sunday morning especially, you know, you're stressing about getting here before the benediction. <laughs> it's not always easy, is it? But in these opening verses, we find a threefold call to worship. And notice how each time it is repeated, something else is added. Yet here, the call in these opening verses is not strictly about the earth, but it is, it's actually happening in the heavenly places. Here, the call goes out to the mighty ones. Who are the mighty ones? The mighty ones are the heavenly beings, the angels, who are, who are most familiar with God's glory. We have that description in Revelations. But we also, in the book of Job, we see how these angels present themselves before God. And this worship is so magnificent that the psalmist describes the angels as worshipping the Lord in the splendour of his holiness. It's a little bit hard for us to imagine what that will be like. But again we go to Revelations and we see this constant worship that happens and you get caught up in that and, 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 the, and John as he describes this amazing image and says I was there and, and I feel so unworthy and, and, and the angels and all all of them they, they worship the Lord they ascribe the Lord the glory due to his name because the Lord is due glory he deserves it it belongs to him to no one else. He will, he will not share that glory with anybody else. He is the only one that is due this glory. One day, perhaps sooner than later, for some of us, we will be there experiencing this worship with the angels, with the saints that have gone before us, with the saints that will come afterwards. For all eternity, we will be worshipping the King of Kings, Lord of Lords. I look forward to that day. I look forward to it. Secondly, the reasons to worship. The voice, let's, let's read these verses again. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders, the Lord thunders over the mighty waters. There's that repetition. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. He makes, well, the voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf, Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord strikes with flashes. Of lightning. The voice of the Lord shakes the desert. The Lord shakes the desert of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord twists the oaks and strips the forest bare. That's happening out there in nature. Spectacular. And what happens in his temple? And in his temple all cry, 
What do they cry? Glory. Glory. In heaven, on earth, the glory due to his name. So in this section of the psalm, we have the reasons to worship God. As I say, the worship moves from the realms in the heavenly places to the Lord's power and glory which is displayed all around here. And David is describing this mighty thunderstorm that begins over the waters of the Mediterranean Sea out west of Israel. And you can imagine the sound because sound over the water actually is accentuated, travels even further. Tell you what, you don't want to be in a small dinghy out to sea when one of these storms erupts. I don't know if you've ever had that experience fishing out to sea and suddenly the, the, the skies start getting dark and you, you either row or you get, start the outboard and rush back inland because you know it's not going to be pretty. And as it moves inland, the, the storm breaks in full fury over the mountains of Lebanon, north of Israel, and, and Sirion, which is otherwise known as Mount Hermon. Now, these mountains to the, to the north of, of, of Israel, they still covered, but they, they were densely covered by the cedars of Lebanon, which were the strongest uh, wood known to them, which they used to use construction and boat building and all of that. It takes a lot of strength to knock over these huge trees, magnificent trees. Yet the Lord snaps them like... Uh, like a matchstick, like a twig. And we know that here the thunderstorm is not driven by God's anger or by his judgment, but by his majestic power. It moves from the sea to the mountains and the forest and finally the storm passes out of sight and it travels south to the, to, to the south to the desert of Kadesh. So all around the land of Israel, this, the, the majesty of God is, is, is displayed in, in, in nature. The only appropriate response is what the angels declare in God's celestial temple and cry, glory, glory to God. Now this, this majestic display of nature is, is far more than a, than, a, than a random act to David. Because in it, in the storm, he hears the very voice of his God in the thunder and the lightning. This is why no less than seven times he speaks of the voice of the Lord. Now, in the ancient Near East, it was common to believe that the, the different gods were the direct cause of the thunder and the lightning. And, and, and so David is, is well aware of the, the, the beliefs of all the other religions around the world at the time and their belief that it was, you know, it was, one of the, it was either Baal or Jupiter or one of the other gods who was 
Now they were arguing or fighting or whatever and you could hear their thunder. But no. He takes the storm away from their gods and he gives it back to the one who truly made them. This is where it belongs. Not to Baal, not to Jupiter, not to anybody else. To the Lord of Israel. The one and only God, the sound who sounds forth, who directs, who controls the storm. I think today we also need to give back the storm to the one who made it. Because, and now I'm going to talk a little bit about what dangers that we face, particularly in this scientific world that we live in. And, and, and whether, when we ourselves, because we are caught up in this system, because rather than assign to the voice and the phenomenon of nature, what is happening to God, we assign it to other phenomena, to other circumstances. And by doing that, we're already starting to take away the glory from God. In some ways, it's a bit like the snake, the devil, in Genesis chapter 3. When God speaks, when we hear God's voice, we question, we question and we say, did God really say? Was that really God? Now we do this in two ways. First of all, there is the danger of reducing God with science. Reducing God with science. We live in a world where science, if not deified, is spoken of in almost religious terms. During the pandemic we witnessed how scientists and doctors refused any questioning of their advice. They almost demanded to be treated like priests of some religious order. The voice from on high. And then those who dare to question man-made global warming are called deniers or sceptics, unbelievers. It's a religious term. Because we try and explain everything scientifically. Now, reductionism is actually a philosophical term. It is usually when... We don't, we probably use the term, but we don't know where it comes from, but it is actually used. Reductionism is, is, is used. It is usually expressed by saying nothing but. It is nothing but. So for example, a, a reductionist might describe a river, a beautiful river, as, as nothing but a large collection of moving water molecules downstream. So suddenly something beautiful you get a scientific description and you say, well, it's nothing, nothing but, you know, just some water molecules flowing downstream. Or a beautiful lake, like the magnificent Lake Victoria, which you might have seen some of the pics. You say, well, it's just a big collection of molecules. You've just reduced something amazing to, eh, no big deal. We use also reductionism when we describe love. 
Love is nothing but just a chemical reaction in the brain. And in the case of lightning, they say, it is nothing but hot air carrying droplets going up and cold air carrying droplets coming down. And the friction between the two is what causes the flash that we call lightning. And the resulting explosion is the thunder. Wow. You just ruined the movie for me. (laughs) The implication being that nothing that happens in nature is directly caused by God. This is what reductionism does. Let's push that a bit further. The earthquakes, the droughts, the floods have a natural cause of things, is what they tell us. The climate is something that we can control as long as we raise a few taxes, burn less fossil fuels and use less energy. We can control it, they tell us. That's not what the scriptures say. So why are believers getting caught up in this rubbish? Reductionism. The power is turned over from God to man. Our destiny is in our hands, they tell us. For many people, the fact that we are making new discoveries or have found scientific explanations for a lot of things is is enough reason to leave God, to push God away from the equation. But that is just as silly as thinking that because you suddenly understand how an internal combustion engine, which is most of our cars, how you understand, suddenly understand how the mechanics of the internal combustion engine works, that suddenly you never have to ask them who invented it, who came up with the concept, who designed it, who articulated it and put all the parts together to make it actually work. In the first place, in the same way, just by simply understanding the workings of nature does not give us the right to rule God out or to diminish his power and his glory. For us, God remains the first cause, the ultimate cause, and in between, the sustainer of all that is happening. He hasn't taken, he hasn't surrendered the steering wheel to us humans. It's not going to happen. He's still in control. He's still on the throne. Which leads us to the second danger, the danger of depreciating, depreciating God's majesty. We're in the month of June, and for those listening overseas, perhaps you don't, you don't know that in Australia the, the financial year ends on the 30th of June. Then on the 1st of July we start the new financial year. It's tax time, and everybody starts to getting their tax in order. Those who have properties or investment properties understand or do accounting, they understand the term to depreciate. 
It basically means that things lose value over time. In this psalm, there is a, there is a call to hear God's voice in the lightning and the thunder. In that, we don't want to lose appreciation. We don't want to depreciate his majesty, his greatness. This is another danger in modern religion, in modern faith. Because we tend to depreciate God's majesty as we appreciate God's closeness. Let me explain. When we stress our closeness to God, we can suddenly lose sight of his majesty. So, today it's, it's pretty common to think of God as a, as a friend, always at your side, your, your buddy, your pal, with whom you can talk in a familiar way, a very personal God, someone who you can enjoy intimate fellowship with. He is our best friend and the one with whom we can bring all our troubles. Don't we sing, what a friend we have in Jesus? And we certainly see that aspect in the scriptures. It's there, yes, I'm not going to deny it. It's certainly there. But the danger is that of forgetting the majesty of God and making him too much like ourselves. And soon we make a God after our own image rather than us being made in the image of God. We lose his majesty in doing so. There was a song that came out a few years ago. I don't know if you remember. What if God was one of us? What if God was just a stranger on a bus or something, wasn't it? The danger is that God becomes something too small, someone too small to solve our problems. And suddenly our faith is also depreciated accordingly. And our worship suddenly becomes mechanical and and lifeless. We've just depreciated God, his word, his demanding statutes and what he expects from us. Did God really say? What we need is a balance in worship. I must admit I do love thunder and lightning. The sudden flash of lightning and the great clap of thunder at night is oh, spectacular. I really get caught up and carried away in the display at the distance and just bang and all of that and oh, I just want to get my camera and see if I can capture some of those flashes of lightning. And there are two elements in my response to the voice of thunder. The first emotion is fascination, this, this, this joy and excitement that I'm, I'm in the presence of something so, so terrible and yet amazingly beautiful. 
In the, David, in the psalm, he speaks of the mountain being made to skip like a calf in the pasture as the thunder explodes. Even the animals are, are like, like they're running, they're going to hide somewhere in order to, to get away from this, this terror. My own heart will skip a beat if I was out there. And therefore, while the first emotion is fascination, the second emotion is fear. And I think if you have ever been caught outdoors like a, like a bushwalk or a trail bike riding or a bike ride out in the bush and suddenly a storm comes, you really have nowhere to go during a thunderstorm and fear sets in. This is why I prefer to enjoy thunder from under the safety of a roof or just staring at the balcony. I can run inside. In our, um, during our trip through the Masai Mara on our first day out, it was, it was getting dark. And in the distance we could see on the horizon that the storm was coming in. Dirt roads, beautiful sight and you could see it. It's, it's, it's coming. And then the drops started coming and, and they just bucketed down because we were caught in the storm and there were flashes of thunder and lightning and all of this. And I'm, you know, I'm getting worried this car's going to get stuck somewhere and we're going to have to get out of there and start pushing the, uh, this four wheel drive. And while Zach here, he's just excited. He's lapping it up. He's, he's, He's saying, oh, this is great, this is fantastic. And I was like, calm down, mate, calm down. This anyway. No fear. Here, he speaks of the lightning splintering the great cedars of Lebanon. These, to understand these cedars of Lebanon, they had like 10 metres in circumference. Humongous trees. And yet the lightning comes and they snap, they break, destroyed by God's power. In the same way, coming into God's presence should elicit in us joy and adoration on one hand, but let us not lose the fear and the trembling. In God's presence. The excitement of the lightning and the thunder is fascination and excitement, but it also that trembling in fear because of the majesty that you are witnessing when we come before. We might find it easier to feel the majesty of God's voice when we hear it in the great clap of thunder. But you know, this is not the only way that God's voice comes to us. It also comes to us in other ways, which are equally majestic. The writer of Hebrews says that God has spoken to us in diverse manners and in in ways. Let's look at some of the ways that the voice of God comes. A great example for us comes from the episode... On Mount Sinai, after Israel had been released from Egypt, 
they, they went and they gathered before Mount Sinai. And this is what we read, Exodus 19 verse 16. On the morning of the third day there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. As God's voice thundered over the people when he spoke the words of the Ten Commandments, the people trembled before it. So they begged Moses to go again, to go before God. They begged him, please go, so that they didn't have to hear God's voice anymore. Imagine that. They begged Moses, please, we are terrified here. We are so scared, fearful, trembling. So they said to to Moses in, in Exodus chapter 20 verse 19, speak to us yourself and we will listen. But do not have God speak to us or we will die. That was fear. That was fear. Let's not lose let's not lose sight of who God is, right? So they preferred a mediator, somebody to go in between so that they didn't have to feel, understand, be be terrified by God's voice. So the voice of God came in a powerful thundering to Israel at Sinai. But he came to the prophet Elijah in a different way. In um, 1 Kings 19.12, after the earthquake came the fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face. You see, when God has your full attention, he doesn't need to scream as Elijah found out. When everything went quiet, it was a whisper and Elijah knew that something special was happening. God spoke through a gentle whisper. Yes, the voice of God can also come to us in a gentle way, in a gentle persuasion. This was the case with Elijah because he was ready to give up. He had had enough. He was going to hang up the gloves. But the Lord guided him to a place where he would have his full attention and care. And sometimes God will guide us to a place where he has our full attention after some trials in life, some difficulty, he will say, well, have I got your attention now? And this is why he is called the God of all comfort. And his voice can comfort us when we need it most. He encourages, he consoles, and he promises to be with us. And he says what we need to hear to help us through the hour of trial. Another great example of the voice of God comes from 
the, the, the Mount of Transfiguration. You remember that episode where three disciples witnessed something that few human beings would ever have the privilege to witness when they, when they were there with, with Jesus. And apart from everything else that they saw, this is what they heard. While he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them and a voice from the cloud said this, This is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. And then comes that phrase, listen to him, listen to him, the voice of God. And when God speaks in whatever way, everything in us has to fall silent. Every objection... Every rationalization, every voice from the world that is saying, no, this is the way it is, but we have to say, no, this is what the Bible says. This is what God says. I don't care how you explain it. I don't care how many genders you come up with. I don't care how you try and... Depreciate God's glory or minimalize it or reduce it. Enough, enough of the arguments, enough of the explanations. We tremble in fear, we rejoice in amazement, and we listen and obey. Full stop. And how privileged we are that in these last days he has spoken to us through his son. How privileged is that? Thirdly, the one to worship, verses 10 to 11. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord is enthroned as king forever. The Lord gives strength to his people and the Lord blesses his people with peace. Once more, as, the, as David concludes this psalm, he, he, he brings it together on the one who we are to worship. And here we, we see two descriptions of God, who he is. You might have, might have known that, in the, might have seen it, it's all over the news. The floods, the floods that Australia has experienced have been have been going on, have been relentless. All our dams are full, the rivers are flowing. It is amazing turnaround in just a couple of years, right? Just a commercial break in the middle. <laughs> So these, these floods that we have had in, a, in Australia have been, well, um, <laughs> incredible really. Like I said, from a turnaround from a couple of years ago when we had so many years of drought. And yet, it is blamed on Mother Nature. Global warming. On human abuse and mismanagement. But somehow it is our fault, whatever happens, whether it's cold or it's hot or it's dry or it's 
wet. It's humid or it's not. It's our fault. Yet I read the scriptures and it is the Lord who sits enthroned over the rain and the floods and the drought. The Lord sits enthroned over what? Over the flood. It is the Lord's voice speaking in no uncertain terms for us to come to him. The landscape is full of water everywhere. Houses are under. Dead cattle flying downstream. God is speaking. But are we listening? Are we listening? Or have we got him on mute? And in verse 11 we have a description of what God does for his people. The Lord provides two things. Two things that his people need the most. One of them is strength and the other is peace. Usually strength will be associated with destruction or the, the inability to control such power and, and use it for a productive means, right? We, we know how nuclear power, for example, is, is wonderful, but it can also be destructive. So we want, to, we want to use nuclear power for good and then control it and then, then try and find a way to, to dispose of the waste. But it is there. It is something that God has provided. The Lord gives power to the sun, to the stars. And yet it is the Lord who gives power to his people through his Holy Spirit. You read the New Testament, you read the Old Testament, and how many times is the Spirit and power mentioned in the same breath together? Spirit, power. Spirit, power. The power is at our disposal through God's grace. What else does God give us? He gives us peace. So power and peace, the two Ps. Peace is it's the war in Ukraine, for example. Peace is, for all the talk of peace in our world, we still struggle to understand what peace is. In Psalm 2, we see how the, the nations rage, and to this day they continue to rage because man has no peace in his heart. And even as we pray for peace, we know that without the Prince of Peace, there will be no peace. The peace that He gives is not as the world gives, it's not through cessation of hostilities, a deal, or anything like that. We recall how Jesus was sleeping in a boat and the disciples panicked. We know what panic is, right? We try to use our card and the, at the ATM machine and the machine says, zero balance. That's panic. Especially when, you got, when you're full of goods at the shopping line and, and uh, what are you going to do with all those, all those uh, things that you need and you've got no money to pay for it. That's panic right there. 
Or you go to the doctor and he gives you a negative report after the exams. That's panic. Or we have to get to work, get in our car, especially in winter, and the car won't start. What do you do? You panic. That's what we do. What did Jesus do? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet! Be still! He spoke to them like children, to the wind and the waves, to the storm, to the thunder. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. That's all he had to do. That's all he had to do. So, please, my brothers and sisters, fellow believers, let's not reduce him, let's not depreciate him, let's not harden our hearts when we hear his voice. Let's not explain it away. What do we need to do? We need to worship him like the angels in the majesty, glory and splendour of his holiness. This is the God who we worship. This is the God who made us, who created us, who saved us through his son. And we have an opportunity, however many years that we have on this earth, imperfectly as, as we live our lives, unfortunately, because of sin, Let's get that practice right of what it means to truly worship him. One day our worship will be perfect. Our voices will be in tune. Ted. (laughs) One day it will be perfect. But we get a glimpse of what perfect looks like. We get a glimpse of his majesty. Open your eyes, open your hearts. And see and be lost in the wonder of what it is to be amazed and tremble in fear before his presence. May God bless us. Amen.